The Gemara Zvachim on highlights that each of the begadim were mechaper for a different chait. And some of the chatoyim were the obvious ones. So, for example, the ksonis, which was the atoned for um, Ritzicha, obviously because of its role in the planned murder of Yosef, which, of course, never, never eventualized, but they took the shirt and they tried to delude Yaakov. The mechnasayim, obviously, that cover private parts for Gilu Arroyos. The choshen amishpat, because it's called choshen amishpat, because it participated in decision-making for the general population, or because it atoned literally for um, deviations or um, perversions of mishpat. So these are the class of the afne, the belt, to separate between the heart and its desires and its lusts and its thoughts, and, um, and or actually not between the lower part of a human being, where some of these thoughts uh, express themselves in the heart, which should be pure. So we would call it a gartel. So these are the classic Averos that we would expect the Beit Dekuhuna to cover, to atone for, literally to cover. But then there are two Averos that uh, are less, three Averos that are less obvious to us, and they're not the cardinal Averos, the Gimel Chamuros. We won't expect them to make it into the list. One of them is arrogance, and Mitznefes, the Gemara says in Tzvachim, atones for sins of arrogance. One is Lashon Hara, the Me'il, which was this large blue overcoat or frock, on top of the uh, big day kahuna, or top of the ksonis and the mechnasayim for lashon hara, the tzitz, which was this gold plate affixed to the forehead of the kohen gadol for insolence and azaspanim. So it's a very strange mixture. Some of them are ritzicha and gilu arayos and dinim, and some of them are nirhurim, which is part of gilu arayos, and some of them are just these minor midos megunos. And if you look at the midos, the midos are all very much about selfishness and self-centeredness. Certainly arrogance is, certainly Lashon Hara is, where you objectify another person and you feel legitimate in slandering them because they're inferior. Remember, every, every moral sin, every interpersonal sin is a labyrinth of many, many different traits and pressures, internal pressures and psychological motives. But at the very least, if I respect another human being, I don't slander them, I don't libel them, I respect their dignity. As is Panem, I feel very confident in myself, my own swashbuckling swagger. And, 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 and the broader message of this Gemara, without honing in on this article of clothing atones for this sin, or this article of clothing for that sin, is that all these selfish traits are atoned for by clothing. Now, they're atoned for by the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, and we're not Kohen, we're not Kohenim Gadolim, but... <clears throat> in the same manner that the clothing of the Kohen Gadol addresses these chataim, and at that level, obviously, it's much more metaphysical, and each article worn by the Kohen Gadol does really metaphysically atone for a chait, and we know this best by the tzitz, the tzitz is meratze for all sorts of malfunctions in a korban, but on our own level, clothing doesn't atone for our sins, but it's meant to help us moderate against these urges and against these tendencies and against these... So the question is how? How does clothing help us modulate and regulate and prevent some of the ugly character traits of selfishness and self-centeredness that manifest themselves in arrogance, that manifest themselves in slander and libel and negative speech, toxic speech, that manifest themselves in inappropriate insolence and audacity and lack of reverence for institutions or for people or for tradition? So I'm trying to bring this whole conversation down 
down a few notches from the elevated ranks of a coin gadol, in which there's a metaphysical interaction between a chet and a particular item of clothing, to a more existential and personal experience. How do my clothing, the clothing I'm wearing right now, how do they help me guard against these chatayim? Because I believe the Gemara is giving a dual message. And the answer is as follows. All these traits of selfishness and self-assertiveness and self-confidence, too much self-confidence, and too much irreverence, and too much objectification of other people, and too much, they're all battled, or they're all checked, by probably one of the most important traits, and a trait that clothing help us achieve, and unfortunately a trait that's always, always miscast, and has to be understood in a broader context, and that's the trait of tznius. So often I hear people translate sneers into modest clothing. And it's such a, a disservice to people on so many levels. First of all, because clothing is something very, very personal. And of course, religion has something to say about clothing and we have to instruct it. But it has to be done delicately and, and, and with sensitivity and with a broadening of the context rather than just slapping clothing requirements on children that are looking to express themselves, and it doesn't always work. And, and, and then the second problem is because it's very gender-specific. It's not just about clothing, but about clothing for women. And that has, that's not what Sneas is. That's one very important manifestation of Sneas. But by broadening what Sneas is and isn't, and appreciating that it applies to both genders, and it applies to areas well beyond clothing, and clothing is one manifestation of it, it's a more holistic conversation. And the definition of tzniyas is trying to blend in, not trying to stand out, not trying to promote yourself, not trying to draw attention to yourself, not trying to self-aggrandize. It touches upon humility, but it's a little different than humility. But it's trying not to be the center of attention, not to be looked at, not to be commented on, not that people should be talking about you and looking at you and making a big deal about you, Again, in the modern jargon, it would be like blending in. Just blending in with your surroundings, being part of the landscape. Now, where does it come from? Why is it such an important trait? Why am I stressing it and circling it and underlining it and highlighting it? It's because it doesn't just come from humility. It comes from recognizing Shivisi Hashem Lenegadi Samid. Any room you're in, any place you're in, you're standing in front of Kutcher Bricho. You're standing in front of the Rabbana Shalom. And how could you? How could you promote yourself and project yourself and celebrate yourself and think about yourself when you're literally standing in front of the Malach Malachim Lachim? And the proof for that is the only time in the entire Masora that we validate lack of Tzniyas and we encourage lack of Tzniyas. And the precedent for that is David Melach, who danced like a madman who danced without any restraint, who danced in front of the Aaron in an uninhibited fashion, and his wife, Michal, was, uh, <coughs> was irate, and his and she chided him, because for her this was a lack of tznias. And David Melech, uh, of course, she was punished according to Chazal. Dav, David Melech, his basic idea, his basic justification was... I am committing myself entirely to celebrating HaKadosh Baruch Hu, celebrating the Torah. Sneos stems from recognizing HaKadosh Baruch Hu and muting yourself or, 
slightly downgrading your own presence because you're standing in front of HaKadosh Baruch But when you are celebrating Hashem's presence, and the way to best highlight Hashem's presence in the room, quote-unquote, or in the setting, is to expend all your energy and to demolish all self-restraint and to dance with all of your verve and all of your vibrancy. So, of course, irony is the tzniyas dick thing to do in front of the iron is to dance without any tzniyas. Because generally, tzniyas stems from recognizing Hashem. But in this context, the best way to recognize Hashem is to dance without any restraint, to celebrate without any... And I saw this with my own eyes. I saw Aaron Lichtenstein, who to me... Um, projected, radiated sneers, and, and, and lack of self-promotion, and just even lack of charisma. A lot of people just didn't appreciate. He didn't have charisma, and in every moment of charisma, there's a projection of self. Okay, it's not excessive, it's not radical. Radical projection of self is aggrandizement, and self-centeredness, and, and um, exhibitionism, and look at me, and religious exhibitionism, and ostentation. But in every moment of charisma, you're, pro- you're projecting your own personality. We need charisma in life. But Ravaran, I think, was too pure for that. He didn't have charisma. And I just saw him dancing on Simchastaro that any restraint and the energy and the loud and the force and the... So Tznius is not about clothing. Tznius is a deportment. Tznius is an attitude. Tznius is a behavior. Tznius is recognizing that Kodesh Baruch is in the room and not wanting to draw attention to yourself. Now, one aspect of that is clothing, and in particular, the issue of clothing relates more, um, I would say, more comprehensively to females. Hashem didn't make the male body attractive just by looking at it. It's a body, I've got arms, I've got legs, it's not something that people are drawn to and attracted to. But of course, even for men, there are tzniyas-related issues that pertain to dress, pertain to hairstyle. A lot of times some men come over, they want to know, why can't they have long hair? And I, I don't think it's fair to say that it's a chassisa for tefillin, you could argue the point, but chassisa is very, very subjective. There's no point in chazal in which a certain quantity of hair constitutes a chassisa. If that's the public and socially accepted hairdo, then that's a hairdo, it's not a chassisa. Um, and, and in many cases, boys are looking to rebel against religion, and having long hair is a way to rebel against religion. And of course, it's only rebellion against religion if the people against whom you're rebelling make a big deal about it. If it's just long hair, then it's not a rebellion. You can rebel, but you need an authority figure who's disappointed to rebel against. But I think the real issue that I talk about with boys is, because if you have long hair, and you walk into a room, people are going to talk about you. You're going to draw people's attention, unless you happen to be in a building where everyone has long hair. But presumably, let's say in the yeshiva setting that, that I typically operate within, some more or less people have close-cropped hair, you know, no, no real difference between Reuven and Shimon. And if Levi walks in with the blazing red hair down to his shoulders, and some boys really want the attention, and I'm trying to condition them, you shouldn't be a person in life who needs attention, who craves attention. You should be someone who's inside out. Self-esteem is defined by internal pride of what you are without the need for external ratification or external approval or external... Once you cross that Rubicon and you need public opinion, you need applause, and you need admiration, your whole life becomes plain to the crowd and you give up your principles and your convictions for what will make other people happy and make other people notice. And it's such an existentially cardinal, seminal issue. How do you live your life? Do you live your life chasing kavod and chasing public interest and chasing people's eyes and chasing people's likes and chasing people's... 
Or do you live your life internally based on principles and you try to drown out and you try to uh, mute all? I mean, obviously you're not someone who's antisocial, you're not someone who's disrespectful to people, but you try to live your life internally based on your value system. And so it's regarding external look and external presentation. Also, I think with men, there's also a level at which clothing becomes non-sneistic, even though, let's say, by bearing a body part, I was going to be really excited to look at a male leg or a male arm. It doesn't excite people in the same way, but if, let's say, you were to dress in a way that's totally inconsistent with your surroundings, and by walking into the room, everyone's going to start talking about you, let's say, a bright red suit or something, that's not sneist, because you're trying to draw attention to yourself, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're a man or a woman. Now, it just so happens that Hashem created, without describing it too uh, vividly, we don't get into these details, but Hashem created the human female figure, purposefully, intentionally, as a very attractive figure. And it's a beauty that Kodesh Baruch Hu invested in. It's a beauty that we should protect. And it's a beauty... I just spoke about this over Shabbos. It's obviously not recorded. Where I had a tish with the boys. And I was talking about... I don't know how we got to the conversation. We talked about something totally different. It was about the Qataris and Barsha's Tetzava and transcendence and distance. The Kodesh Baruch Hu talked about that. Part of attraction to something is magic and mystique and discovery and uncovering something you don't know and the hunt and the process and the probing and... That's why relationships are so hard to build today, because everyone knows about each other before we even go out, before we even meet one another, because all the information is out there in social media, so it's hard to fall in love with a human being when there's no discovery, where there's no mystique, where there's no magic. And the same thing with without dressing in a sneistic fashion, if everything is bare, and everything is open, and everything is seen, then there's, there's, there's no longing, and I don't mean desire in the in the lustful sense, but desire to know more about the person and to know more about that person and to have a relationship with the person. So she created the female body intentionally to be attractive. And therefore, if too much of the female body is uncovered, aside from whatever males will respond to, and I don't think it's fair to justify female clothing sneeze codes based on not exciting or arousing male interest. Males have to deal with their own eyes and their own interests and their own passions and their own experiences. Obviously, you don't want to ever provoke or incite, but the issue is internal. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. And if too, if you're not dressed in a sneistic fashion, you're drawing attention to yourself. And for women, that's an issue, not a woman's. I don't want to, want to speak too extensively about an issue I've never experienced personally, because I think that's disingenuous. But I know as a male, I have to be careful not to draw too much attention to myself. And the areas that I work on and am careful of are broader areas, not necessarily how much of my body is, is uncovered. And for women, they also have to work on that. And to be honest, it's not just about clothing. I've met women in life who wear uh, what we would call as coated clothing that adhere to the laws of sneeze, but their personality just doesn't strike me as sneistic. Their need for public approval, their self-promotion, the way they speak, the way they behave. And to be quite honest, I've met women who for whatever reason, don't adhere to the halachic sneeze codes that I would, let's say, assume I would want people to adhere to, my own family adheres to, and they just come across as very, very sneistic people in their nature. When I speak to boys about finding a shidduch, I say, look for sneeze in a woman, because I think that's a natural trait Hashem expects of women and endows women with, and it helps tame, T-A-M-E, and regulate and mod- moderate the male ego, because the male ego creates ambition and drive and desire to change and desire to be in the public sector. And the sneos element in a woman can help create a more composite and healthier balance about the private domain and the public domain, the internal world and the external world. 
And I encourage them, try to look into the soul, into the personality of the woman you're dating, not just her clothing. See if she's a sneistic person. Don't just be fooled by how much clothing they're wearing. Think about their deportment, their attitude. Their, and it's something which both of you should work on together. How do you create a world in a marriage in which you achieve and express yourself and make change and engage, but you maintain your tzniyas? And it's very, very hard. And I've seen a lot of people who, in my opinion, don't have that balance. And there's too much self-projection and too much self-interest and too much self-aggrandizement and too much self-centeredness. So clothing helps us on the one hand, express ourselves, but on the other hand, for males in one manner, for females in another manner, we dress in a way that hopefully allows us to be part of the larger context rather than stand out from the context. And that's why the Gemara Zvachim pitches clothing as a hedge or a check against Azazponim, against Lashon Hara, against, um, what's the other one, against Agassiz Haruach, arrogance, because not just do the big dick kahuna atone for this sin or that sin metaphysically, but begotten in general, help us preserve, help us develop and cultivate tznias. And the more tznias dick we are, private is a poor word, but the, the, the more, the less self-aggrandizing and the less self-promotional we are, the less we'd be apt to be arrogant, the less we are apt to be insolent and irreverent, the less we are apt to disrespect other people, one manner of disrespecting other people is slandering their reputation and speaking gossipy about them and negatively about them. Because you respect other people if you're not the center of the universe and the center of your presence and of your universe. Now, in today's world, I think the the battleground, I don't want to say battleground, battleground is too dramatic, but the arena in which this issue has to be carefully calibrated and carefully checked and carefully inspected is, of course, social media. And we're still in the early stages of social media to the point where I'm not sure there are enough rabbinic voices out there that completely understand social media and talk about it in ways that are balanced. Obviously, if, 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 uh, if someone has no clue of social media, then it all just seems like Gila Royos and it all just seems like Lashon Hara and it all just seems like... And, and, of course, it's just a medium. And it's the same medium that we had in newspapers 50 years ago, and the internet of 25 years ago, and now it's social media such as Facebook or Instagram or uh, Twitter or X, and in 30 years will be another medium. So you can't villainize or demonize a medium. You may decide you don't want to interact with that media or medium because you feel that until we iron out the kinks and we understand its dangers, we understand its threats, we don't want to take those risks. And the other side says, well, early adoption of technology is empowering and it may be worth the risk. And there just are two different, two different approaches. I, I elaborate in the actual shear upon these two different approaches. And I don't want to elaborate here because I don't want this shear to be too long. But I think we need nuanced, nuanced guidance in social media. And to me, beyond the obvious, the obvious is obviously these media make it easier and enable... The, uh, the viewing of material and media that's inappropriate for Torah eyes and Torah hearts. And obviously they're very addictive in ways that can wreck our schedule and sap our energy and ruin our routine and, in the literal sense, uh, steal time away from meaningful experiences, certainly from Talmud Torah, which we would then call Bittal Torah. So those are the obvious. And, and I don't think the media are... Um, 
dramatically different than previous media, but they are multipliers, and they are exponentially different, and do take more time away from us, let's say, reading a magazine, or even surfing the internet, for all sorts of reasons I'm not going to describe here and now. But I think the more unique aspect of social media that we didn't face when we were reading media, or looking at pictures in print, or even looking at them on the internet, as long as the internet wasn't driven by social media, but driven by top-down delivery of information and media, but social media is bottom-up, where everyone delivers their own information, and there's a democratization of information delivery, is so much of social media today is self-promotion. Looking to draw attention to yourself, to your life, to your experiences, to your family, to your eating habits, to your hamburger, to your Super Bowl viewing party, to your school, to your people. And we're becoming addicted to self-promotion. Just think about the, the, uh, the chemical reaction that you get when someone likes one of your posts, or people that are constantly checking how many people liked my post, and how many people gave the thumbs up, and how many people reposted, and how many people... And the challenge, at least as I see it, and the way I try to use social media, I always keep the following goals in mind. I don't want to promote myself. I want to annihilate myself. I want to take myself out of the picture. But I do want to be a connector. I do want to try to connect people through social media to meaning and content and meaningful experiences that they can only get to through me and through my experiences. So obviously, 80% of my posts are just links to Taurus. So I'm totally, it's not my picture. I mean, maybe my picture shows up as a thumbnail in the sheer way. I don't like that either. I try to post other pictures, so my picture doesn't appear. I want people to be thinking about me. I want them to be thinking about the Torah. So I try to post other pictures to eliminate the thumbnail with my picture, whatever those pictures are. And let's say, for example, just the example that's most recent, last Sunday we went down south and we went to several locations where I thought there were unique experiences that people would want to be part of when we went to the Nova site and we went to a kibbutz that was under fire when we said to Mishabara for some of the hostages that are still there. So in both cases, I felt it's not about me. I just happened to take journeys and engage in experiences that are collective, that are of national interest or of international interest. Remember, I was very involved in social media about, what was it, eight, nine years ago when the three boys were taken captive because unfortunately I was very involved. My son was a roommate with Natali Frankel, Zechron and Levrachan. I felt like people in America wanted to be, people across the world wanted to be part of these experiences, and they couldn't. So I tried to share, but in a batamt, an appropriate fashion, to share. And, and, and that's so important. The second issue, which is, I didn't talk about this in the first year, but also know the setting, and know where you are, and taking a selfie on Harabayas is, there's a conversation about whether you should or shouldn't go up to Harabayas. And that's a legitimate conversation. And it's partially halachic, and it's partially conceptual, and it's partially hashkafa, and many, many layers to it. And I, I don't personally ascend to Harabais, and I participate in multiple panels expressing why I don't. And I perfectly validate, my kids do, my sons-in-law do, it's nothing I'm opposed to. But it, you have to maintain the integrity of the moment, and the transcendence of the location, and okay, I think maybe taking pictures that are appropriate so that others who don't ascend to Harabais, or to encourage people to ascend to Harabais, there's a thin line in some of the pictures. Not that I look at them, but I just imagine that some of the pictures may just be desecrating the sanctity of what the Harabais is meant to represent and to symbolize. And the same thing, you know, to go down to some of the kibbutzim. And it's a real issue. And people have asked me my opinion. Should we visit Beiri and Faraza? Should we not visit Beiri and Faraza? And I think there's 
there's legitimate positions on both ends. And I think we took the boys, we talked about it as an educational staff in Gush. We took the Americans, the overseas boys, because they've been more insulated from the experience. They haven't gone to as many funerals. They don't know as many people who, who were killed in battle. So they wanted to create some exposure. But we didn't take them to the harsh locations such as Bayri and Farazi. We took them to a kibbutz, which was less damaged. And they were able to connect with them to the Nova site, which is the party site, which is very meaningful, but without some of the violence and brutality on display. But people that do go is to be careful about the types of pictures you take, and for many, many, many reasons, which I think are obvious to anyone with, with moral integrity and compassion and, and dignity. But getting back to the first point, you have to be very, very cautious about how you employ social media. Do you employ social media to promote yourself, or do you employ social media to connect people beyond yourself to experiences of content and meaning that you happen to have access to, in the case where I give a share, or in the case where I attend something, or in the case where I see a post that I have some comment on. But it's not about me, it's about the comment, the wisdom that I think my comment conveys. Now, it's not always so easy to discriminate between the two, so I can't I can give a rule book that this type of a post is self-promotional, and that type of a post is, is connecting but I think some things are obvious, where you're connecting people to nothing. It's just about you. They should look at you. Um, some are less obvious. I know myself, I struggle um, when I make family simchas. On the one hand, a lot of, let's say, Talmudim and friends who know my children, have grown up in our house. I'm not in touch with a lot of people because I live in Eretz Israel, so they're not part of my life, so I don't bump into them in the supermarket. And they would want to know if I made a bar mitzvah, or if I had a grandchild, or if I... On the other hand, these are my children and their lives, and and why should I put a picture of myself and my family? For two reasons. First of all, because I would never put a picture of anyone without their permission. It's very invasive. It's very disrespectful. And I don't think my children want their pictures on my Facebook page. I'm not just going to pop a picture. And of course, I could ask them, but <laughs> you never want to ask someone a question if they don't have the right to say no. And as a father, I have to ask my child, by the way, you just had a child, can I put your pictures so people can see? I don't think they feel comfortable saying no because I'm their father, but I don't want to put them in that position. And I, I, I think about how forward to be about trying to share my own personal family sin. Because on the other hand, people want to wish a mazel tov, people want to know, people want to be a part of it, people want to share in the joy, it's a natural response, it's a mitzvah. So I'm always uncertain about whether that's crossing the line from connecting people to something larger than myself of content or promoting myself, and at least for me personally, the, the policy that I've taken, if I post it all, and I rarely post, because there's other ways for the information to go out, the yeshiva sends out emails to the yeshiva community of alumni, so they get that information. Maybe here and there I'll just post a text, mazel tov to my children on the birth of, mazel tov to my child on his engagement too, without posting a picture. But again, I think that is a legitimate enough space that both approaches are valid. My goal is not to give a line-by-line um, rule book of what is or isn't, not, not my rule book to write, but to create awareness of an area that I think sometimes gets overlooked because we rush headlong into our critique of social media with all the classic issues that really aren't different. They've just been multiplied by internet, been multiplied by social media. But the real challenge is, how is social media affecting our news? Are we becoming a community of people that are addicted to likes, addicted to public approval, addicted to attention, addicted to self-promotion, addicted to self-aggrandizement? And even if we were a shaitel for a woman, or we dressed sneistic if we're a man, 
if the internal attitude is one which craves attention, it's like any other addiction. You can't break it, and you'll find ways to get people's attention. Sometimes you'll find ways that are very, very morally and even halachically troubling. But forget the moral and halachically troubling, existentially, developmentally, it's a very unhealthy way to lead your life. Very unhealthy to be so dependent on likes as a metaphor that your entire goal is to generate interest in you rather than pursuing eternal values that deepen you, that fill you with meaning, and trying to live those values independent of the public discourse and independent of external ratification and independent. It's really the labor of life to try to be so authentic and so internal and so quiet and so private because with privacy comes depth. Rabbi Soloveitchik used to say that the Beis HaMikdash was built in the area of Yushalayim, which is allocated to Shevet Yud. Of course, Yiddishkeit Judaism doesn't separate between the political center, epicenter, and the religious epicenter. The monarchy is an extension of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's will, and we don't have a separation of powers. Obviously, there's a built-in balancing of powers, and the Nabi is meant to critique the Melech, and based in his men. But essentially, it's all part of one nexus and one cohesive, coalescent element. But there was a strip of land that jutted out from the portion of Yehuda, and jutted, I'm sorry, jutted into the portion of Yehuda from the portion of Binyamin. And on that little strip of land, the Kodesh Hakadoshim, the Kodesh Hakadoshim, was situated with the Aaron Hakadosh. And the Rav would say, because Shevet Binyamin stems from Rachel. And Rachel was the champion of Tznius. Because she was the champion of Tznius, it was hereditary, it was genetic, it passed through to her children, great-great-grandchildren. And to protect the Kedusha of Hashem, you need a Shevet that lived Tznius. Now, that's of course metaphysical, that a Kodesh Baruch's Kedusha has to be protected in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. But in a broader sense, if there's no Tznius and there's no depth, and there's no values, and there's no eternity, and there's no transcendence. It's all just what people will say about you, what people will think about you, how much people will approve of you, how much people will be speaking about you and interested in you. And of course, there's only one scene, and the Gemara Regula speaks of this, in which Rachel is presented as a stick woman. It's not because when she's at the well with Yaakov, she's wearing such modest clothing, I'm sure she is, it's not because in uh, all of her interactions she's walking around with a shaitel. I'm sure she's behaving in whatever clothes that Sneas were appropriate in those days of dress. But the Gemara highlights her wedding night. Why was she at Sanu on her wedding night? Because even though her father-in-law swapped, her father swapped in her sister, she waited seven years, and I can't imagine not objecting to this process. I can't imagine not disclosing the subterfuge. I can't imagine that. Not only does she play along, but she delivers the secret codes to her sister Leah so that Leah doesn't become mortified. Now that's a very heroic moment. That's a courageous moment. But why is it cast by the Gemara as a moment of sneers? It's a Gemara Megillah. Why is it cast as Rachel's moment of sneers, her profile of sneers? It's not about clothing. It's not about a shaito altar. It's about Rachel decentralizing herself, caring about her sister, so deeply that she doesn't want Leah to be embarrassed or mortified under the chuppah, that not only does she collude with this self-inflicted wound, but she actually protects the dignity of her sister because on that night, she could have been wallowing in her own frustration and her own disappointment and her own self, and she had the strength of character to step outside herself 
and think about someone else. That's this. Not thinking only about yourself. Not wanting the self to draw attention. Respecting other people. Recognizing the dignity of other people. One manifestation is clothing. Because clothing, especially for a female, draws attention to yourself. But for men, they have to learn how to act in sneers as well. And unfortunately, social media creates a platform for very non-sneistic activity, both by men and women, because promoting yourself is a cross-gender violation of sneers.